All right. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all your smiling, happy faces this morning. And I'm super happy because we get to continue on in our series in Hebrews today. Um, it's, it's been a wonderful book, hasn't it, up to this point? I feel like it has been a great book. It has been so convicting and just full of different areas and aspects that we can look at and we can see where God is trying to speak to us and speak to them. So speak to them then and speaking to us now. So excited to continue this series. So for those of you that don't know, my wife Jen and I, we have two beautiful kids that I love to the moon and back. They're sitting right there. If you're a parent, you know that every kid has different personalities. They have different likes, different dislikes, senses of humor, and each one has different strengths and weaknesses. So with my two kids, there are massive yet beautiful differences in each of these categories that make them uniquely them. In some areas, Malachi excels where Amara might struggle, and in some areas, Amara might excel where Malachi might struggle. But one category that Jen and I noticed the difference in from a super young age was the skill of running. So Amara took to it like a fish in the water, right? She's able to outrun any kid her age, even some older kids. When she runs, there's precision. Her hands and feet are moving at the same time in rhythm with the rest of her body. She's breathing properly with just a fire behind her eyes. If you know Amara, there's just always a little fire behind her eyes, but especially when she's got a goal, when she's running towards something. So on the other end of the spectrum was Malachi with this. So if you didn't know, my incredible son has been 99th percentile for every category from the day he was born. Every category. That's a lot, right? He's always been the tallest kid around. He's always been the biggest kid. And he's usually mistaken for a kid years older than he is because of his size. That said, being such a big kid his whole life, there was a lot less body awareness and ability to control when it came to things like hand-eye coordination, but especially when it came to running. So from the time he could get up and walk on his own, there just was a disconnect. It just was a disconnect when it came to running. So him and I would go outside and we would practice all the time just trying to train good form, trying to help him succeed, help him to move forward in this. We would work on how important each aspect of running was from the rhythm of the hands and the feet to even where you need to be looking when you're doing the activity. All of this leading up to this last Saturday. So this last weekend at the Red, White, and Brew race here in town, both Malachi and Amara ran the kids' fun run, okay? But they didn't just run it. They went and they finished the full mile race. And it was because of hard work. It was because of figuring things out, like the proper shoes that he needed to help support him in this, remembering training, remembering technique. It was because of dedication and a desire to run well that Malachi ran. And he didn't just run, he ran extremely well. And I'm so beyond proud of both my kids for their perseverance to run that mile without stopping, that they took the challenge on, that they ran and they kept running, they ran hard, and they ran well. So this morning, as I said before, we have the privilege of continuing on in our series in Hebrews, beginning in the last chapter of this book, chapter 13. So up to this point in the book, we've seen a 
gamut of things the author was presenting to the people, to them then and to us now. And throughout the entirety thus far, seeing seeing one thing consistently ring true, and that is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. With an emphasis the last few weeks being a look at how we should run the race through this life, knowing this truth, that Jesus, our Savior, is in fact better. So four weeks ago, Pastor Dan began walking us through chapter 12 with the main emphasis of just being run. Run the race set before us. Run with endurance. He took us on a little journey through the visual of what the Leadville 100 looked like, the arduous journey that it could be going through that. But keep going. Run the race. Leading us to Josh Breffel's sermon the following week with the drive of keep running. Remember your training. Remember those IVs in the dark that they had to do. And through the trials, the steadfastness that's been produced by God's grace will help us to keep running. Taking us to Chad's sermon last week, focusing on running hard. Even being state champions, even knowing the race had already been won, don't stop. Don't don't lollygag around. Run hard. Know that the victory is already secured through Christ Jesus. But run passionately while finishing the race. Run hard. Which moves us directly into our passage today that's going to give us a glimpse into what it looks like to run right. So, so far, we've seen the necessity to run, to keep running, to run hard. And today we get to see what it looks like to run right. Because in this race, we need to go back to the basics sometimes. We need to know how to properly run. We need to go back to the mechanics, back to the rhythm and the structure to accomplish the run to the best of our abilities. So throughout this section of Scripture, we're going to see several variables regarding this form, this function, and the technique of our run. The first section of these verses directly relates to the way that we are running with others in our lives, breaking down brotherly love, hospitality, and what it's going to look and what it should look like to bear each other's burdens. How we should love on and walk with those in the body going through brokenness, hardship, persecution, you name it. It's a call to run well with others. With the rest of the verses processing through the way we ourselves as individuals are running in this race going through marriage, going through sexual immorality, the love of money, and how to view leaders and teachers, uh, leaders and teachings, specifically in that point, a look at how to continue to run in a right way with a world inundated with false teachings. That's the basic breakdown of what it looks like. All of these directly contributing to the form and function of our run. To ensure we not only go the distance in our lives, but we do it well. We do it right. So this morning, as we deep dive into this passage in Hebrews, I want you to be asking yourself these questions. In my life, am I actually running? In my life, am I keeping on in the run? Am I running hard? 
and am I running right? So actually running, keeping on in the run, running hard, and running right. Let's pray. Dear God, we just want to thank you so much for this time that we get to be together. Thank you for the opportunity we have just to worship you, to speak your name, to to learn more about you. God, I pray that this morning as we dive into this passage, as we look at what it, it looks like in our lives to run right, God, that you would just convict us. You would help us to grow. You would sanctify us. And God, that we would not leave here without seeing you more clearly. And God, if there's anyone in this place that does not truly know you, I pray that you would open their eyes to see you clearly. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Scripture, it's pretty common in the New Testament epistles to make a transition towards the end of most of those books from the imperatives to the indicatives. There's a great example of this if you want to see it in Romans chapters 12 through 15, where Paul makes a pretty hard left turn from the so what of the now what in the book of Romans. So in this last chapter, the author transitions from the reasoning of the book to the actions necessary to accomplish all that was written in the book. So it reminds me a lot of Hunter's Safety Course. Bear with me. You're like, wow, that's a, that's a shift right there from beginning of Hebrews to Hunter's Safety. So the reason I say this is because in Hunter's Safety class, you sit through hours of lectures on gun safety, weapons themselves, the proper use of weapons, the purpose behind hunting, and there's a breakdown of a million other things that are pertinent to you as the hunter. Now, once the class is finished, you get this special little orange license. It's great. So you're like, yes, I did it. And they don't just say, okay, have fun. See you later. No, they, they give you guidebooks. They give you several different guidebooks that give you the how-to of the information that they just gave you. They give you several different things, and the guidebook doesn't just talk about hunting. It gives you practical ways to accomplish the task at hand. So you know what it is, you know why it is, where it is, and from the guide, you know how to do it and to do it properly. So just like Hunter Safety, the author makes his transition from the material itself to the how-to, starting in verse 13.1 that says this, let brotherly love continue. Man, what a great way to start any passage, right? Especially right here especially right here on the how-to section of running the race right. Let brotherly love continue. So this, as the rest of the book was, is a reference to fellow believers. There's a deep unity and love that has to be maintained in order that the race be run properly. So in the ancient Middle East, brotherly love wasn't only a good thing. To them, it was a necessary thing. So Byzantine anthologist Stobius once stated that brotherly love and a positive disposition to kinsfolk is an excellent thing and that it is necessary. To understand this concept, we need to understand the words being used here. We need to break it down a little bit more. So brotherly love, this word here, this words, is rooted in the word phileo. I'm sure most of you have heard that word before, phileo. 
which originates from the Greek word, the Greek term philos. And it's a noun that means beloved, dear, a friend, someone that's dearly loved, prized. This is a personal, intimate thing. This is a trusted confidant that's held dear. It says it's in a close bond of personal affection. And the kicker here is that philos expresses experienced-based love. Experienced-based love. So in this section, it takes a deeper meaning of this phileo by using the word Philadelphia, being the specific brotherly love being talked about here. Yes, the city of Philadelphia was named brotherly love if you didn't know that. So the first training tip for the people then and for us now is a continued action. It's something already happening, but being urged to continue. So I think it's apropos that the very first thing mentioned in the list being presented is love. Let brotherly love continue, and this is that specific brotherly love. So as we read this with our modern Western minds, this might just seem like a sweet sentiment, right? Oh, that's nice. Oh, brotherly love. Let's let it continue. Be kind. Be nice. But in actuality, this brotherly love being spoken of was a really big deal. 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's a pretty intense love, don't you think? So scripture doesn't take this brotherly love lightly. It's a serious matter. And the author is placing it as the central piece to the guide on running right, running correctly. And there's an acknowledgement here. There's an acknowledgement that it may be painful, but it's necessary for continued movement, for proper movement. Understanding this deep love for our brothers then takes us directly into several areas that this brotherly love is seen that needs to be focused on to ensure this race is run right. The first is in verse 2. It says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So travel at this day and age was extremely difficult. Therefore, because of that, hospitality was extremely high on the ladder of showing brotherly love to others. According to Apuleius and Petronius, inns at the time in the Roman corridor were awful places. They were terrible, and especially towards Christians, which would make travel even more difficult if someone wasn't willing to be hospitable. There's a reason in this section on brotherly love, on love, that hospitality, that taking care of others is first on this list. In this idea, though, the idea of free room and board and free food, this would have been super appealing to all types of people, including those who were looking to do harm to believers or just simply take advantage of these homes that were willing to bring them in. But even so, even with that in the back of their minds, even with that potential, they and we are called to live this out. 
In order to run right, we're told that stranger or fellow brother, doesn't matter, should be taken in, should be treated well, should be loved on, shown the love of Christ no matter the outcome. Now, the people at the time, they weren't stupid, though. They weren't just trying to run into a ring of fire. They actually had a secret way of knowing if someone was lying about who they were. Pretty interesting. They had rules set up in the culture between believers that if someone stayed longer than two days, or if they took more than one loaf of bread on departure, they were not who they said they were. And that gave them the opportunity to notify others in the community saying, hey, you guys, just listen up. They stayed more than two days. They took more than one loaf of bread. Just be aware. They are not who they say they are. Yet even in that, even in desiring safety with helping others, the call still remains to run the race right, show brotherly love by being hospitable. In this, there's an interesting add-on that's thrown in that you never know. Maybe the person that you're helping is an angel. Which, by the way, this morning before I came up here, Sarah Rice started singing the old Newsboys song, Entertaining Angels. And anyone know that song, Newsboys? Anyway, now I can't get it out of my head. <clears throat> so yeah, maybe the person you're helping is an angel. And there's two accounts that inevitably the people at the time would have been thinking of when they read this verse. And that was when Abraham entertained the three men, one of them ending up being Yahweh, telling him Sarah will, was going to have a son, and the other was being in Sodom when Lot entertained the two men that ended up being angels. Either way, this addition wasn't telling the people that your motivation should be to help angels. That shouldn't have been their motivation. What this was saying to them and to us now is to keep the perspective of you never know who you're serving. Therefore, because of that, serve everyone to the best of your ability. It's a really convicting reminder um, to them. It should be to us now, but this is definitely convicting to me. So I'll be honest, hospitality is not my strong suit. It's not really my jam. But Jen is a superstar at this. She is so good at hospitality. My desire for comfort and my lack of trust in people, it tends to lean me to the lack of hospitality side of life. With my background in the military, I was also an operations manager for a security company. I immediately go to the negative when it comes to helping in situations like this, thinking there's always an ulterior motive, thinking that people are always out to take advantage. And from this passage, and understanding the culture then, I need to get over myself and love others in this respect just like Christ would. Now, nothing is going to remove the protective side of me, right? And I wouldn't ever put my family at risk, and I'm not telling you to put your families at risk, being smart about different scenarios, but in order to run the race right, I need to be hospitable even when it's uncomfortable, even when it might hurt. By God's grace and sanctification, I'm growing in this area, but I see now clearly the emphasis and the importance Scripture places here, and I pray that you do too with it. But hospitality is not the end game. That's not it. 
the author continues with the next difficult training tool, the next point in the manual for a right run in verse 3. It says this, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So we see all throughout Scripture that imprisonment of believers was commonplace, all throughout the Bible. And in order to run right, the author brings out this next piece to the massive concept of brotherly love. Remember those. Remember those in this context is an active suffering. Just like we talked about brotherly love is an active word, this remembering is actually active. It's not just thinking about or sending good vibes about those who are suffering their, their way. Those who are going through persecution just Hey, I'm thinking about you. No, this is actually a bold call to be an active part of taking care of them. Not just taking care of them, but empathizing with those who are in this position. Bear their burden together. Show them the love of Christ when they're considered outcasts, when they're thrown away. The body in this, in this verse, this would have been a strong visual to the people would have been a really big deal to them because it would make them think of being a part of an actual body that feels what the rest of the body does, a body that mourns as one, feels pain and agony as one, and is restored as one. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says this, if one member suffers, all suffer, suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So this point of training for the run of life is the second sacrificial piece to the puzzle of this brotherly love. This point, it can be uncomfortable, it can be hard, just like the last one is, but it's drastically necessary for proper form and proper movement. So nowadays in our American culture, it's almost non-existent for someone to be in prison due to their faith. Not saying that's not what the future looks like, but as of right now, here in this, in this country, it's really non-existent. Around the rest of the world, different. Whole different story. But here and now, where we're at, it's, it's not commonplace. So this does not mean, since it's not commonplace here, that we pass this portion of Scripture up because it might not seem relevant. Because this is just as relevant today as it was then. So it might not be in the context of prison here, but members of our body are still broken. They're still suffering. They're in pain. They're mourning, beat down, broke down. And in these contexts, we're called for the continuation of the right run, for the continuation of brotherly love to be there, empathize. Do what you can to show them the love of Christ by being the hands and the feet of Christ. How many of us so often will ignore the cries of the hurting because it might make us uncomfortable? How many of us ignore something going on in someone's life because you just assume someone else is going to take care of it? I think... In this culture, we like to stay in our comfortable cocoon. We like inverted churches with our comfortable, easygoing friends where nothing ever happens. But how often are we actually stepping into the fold 
like Scripture tells us to, being by our, the side of our brothers and sisters that are dealing with messiness, helping walk through the brokenness, empathizing and putting yourself directly into their shoes. Church family, this is a call to everyone that calls themselves a Christian. Not just some. It's not just some. Or maybe someone else will, will deal with it because I just don't have time. Or really, I, I don't want to. I just don't want to because I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't care what the excuse is. We're all called to this. And in this area of running right, for the sake of the glory of God, for the edification of the body, and the movement of the gospel, we all need to take a hard look and see how we react to this point in the manual being brought into play. Now, with that being said, like I said in the previous one, hospitality, are any of us going to do this perfectly well all the time? Absolutely not. But we need to still see the call and desire to move towards being better at that for the sake of the gospel. With that being said, the author shifts from a focus on brotherly love with an emphasis on others, like we just talked about, to the next section of right running, the section on us as individuals. Verse 4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So at the time this was written, there were several things being played out regarding marriage. The first was a false cultural push that celibacy was better than marriage. Or in other terms, it was more highly exalted than marriage. Hence the initiation of this right running point that marriage be held in honor. Celibacy wasn't better than it. Marriage needs to be held in honor. So after addressing this, the author goes into marriage itself as a whole, keeping the marriage bed undefiled. So this tells me, since it's mentioned with such boldness in this verse, that this might have been, actually I can probably say with confidence, it was a struggle for the Hebrew people. They were inundated with so much cultural diversity, right? They, they were around the Romans and the Greeks, and they had a massive disrespect for the marriage bed. And there are several other cultures, which we don't have time to go through, that had different beliefs that could skew proper understanding for them. In this, though, the author hammers home the severity of disrespect to what God says. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6 says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So this not only addresses the way to run right, but the extreme consequences for those who don't. I think this section, because of the culture we're in, loses the intensity that it deserves. I think most people nowadays read this and go, yeah, okay. 
sexual immorality is bad, but you know, all sin is bad. All sin is equal in God's eyes. And you know what? Maybe so in the sense of salvation. All sin is wiped clean by the blood of the cross if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But like any parent knows, there are certain consequences for certain things. Some are way more intense than others. And it's clear here that the consequences for sexual immorality is beyond severe. Church, I want you to think about any believer or even non-believer that's been caught in sexual immorality and put it in the context of the run. Running right, running correctly. That person has almost a permanent broken leg or a limp in the run. Yeah, by God's grace, their sin is forgiven because of their faith in Jesus. Yes, there is grace. Yes, there is forgiveness. But that does not take away from how their race is run from that point forward. Sexual sin is so devastating that it lingers. It haunts. It taunts. It ruins relationships. And it can actually ruin lives as a whole. Few things in this life can boast such destruction. So yes, the race can and will continue. And it will continue to be a run if that person is a true believer. With repentance in their heart for what they've done, but it will never be ran in the same way it should have been. Guys, there's a reason Scripture is so aggressive about this point. There's a reason God says the things that he says. It's not because he is some angry kid in the sky with a magnifying glass trying to burn you up, making sure you have no fun. No, it's because he knows the consequences. He knows the brokenness of, the, of these things and what happens and loves us enough to tell us to avoid it at all costs. That being said, I don't want any of you that have dealt with this sin in the past or even might be dealing with it right now to hear a message of condemnation from me. This is simply the truth from Scripture of the consequences that this sin will incur. And I pray if you're sitting here right now dealing with this sin, you wouldn't hide it any longer. You wouldn't let it linger. There is, like I said, thank God, forgiveness in Jesus. No matter what you've done, if you believe he died for you, repent of those things you've done, and know he rose again, defeating those sins, you're saved. That's always and forever. But living in these sins and not bringing them to light will only further destroy your run. Going from a run with a broken leg to a, a run with a broken arm until the run is simply, it's just a crawl and you're actually doing more damage than you are good. So I want you to think about this. In scripture, God says divorce is not okay unless there's sexual immorality attached to it. The beautiful thing that God created in the garden before the fall of man 
So you think about that. Before the fall, God created this. He hates sexual immorality so much, he says that that is the thing that will bring a marriage to an end. And again, if you're struggling with this, this today, don't, don't let it linger. Talk to me. Talk to another pastor. Talk to a community group leader. Give it to God and let the healing begin in your life. Yeah, the run might be a limp because of the brokenness it might bring, but still run right. Even with a limp for the sake of the gospel, God's glory and those around you, do it for God and his glory. This transitions quickly to the next point in the manual for the sake of right running, verse 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The transition here from the defilement of the marriage bed to the love of money, it's actually seamless. So when you look at the wording in the Greek, we see the word covetousness which at the time it could have been seen as both sexual immorality regarding marriage and also the love of money. So covetousness is the opposite of contentment. Bringing out that the right run is free from this covetousness and filled with contentment. Within a lack of contentment brings thriving anxiety, wanting more yet not having it can send someone into a downward-facing spiral instead of an upward-facing, steadfast run. So just like training Malachi, if you simply stare at the ground, you can't see where you're going, right? Yeah. You get lost in the fear of falling versus keeping your head up, running straight. If there's a love of money, there's a lack of contentment, which means there's fear, which means you're looking at the wrong thing. The end of verse 5 here speaks directly to this and should be a sobering yet comforting reminder. Don't worry about anything like it says in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Don't be a lover of money because it brings a lack of contentment. Like I said, anxiety, fear leads to a full lack of trust in the one true provider. He will always provide. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In the right run, your eyes need to be fixed where they should be with another smooth transition into six where we see this trust in the Lord is not one of lazy complacency to sit and to not move, but saying in this life as we run the race and desire to run right, we have to remember that the Lord is our helper. We have to remember this. He's the one we trust. What can man do to me? Which is actually a direct quote from Psalm 118.6. So in the talk of love of money, we know how serious God is about this, knowing how drastically it can affect the run, that is specifically called out for leaders in the church to not fall into this, which says that in 1 Timothy 3.3, listing out the different things that elders need to have before they're an elder, with even more detail in 1 Timothy 6.6. So in the author's fashion of leading from one great right running point to the next, he transitions directly into leadership. Verse 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
So in this, if we're looking at our extra special running guide, we would see this next point as remembering your leaders, just with a couple subpoints underneath it. So go back to what we talked about before when we were talking about those that are in prison. It said, remember. If you remember that it wasn't a passive thing, it was an active word. A word that is molding and shaping form and technique by being active. I'm going to call it active stretching. Originally, I called it ballistic stretching, and the guys were like, what does that even mean? I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, stretching really hard? I don't know. So with this one thought, there's an active point in remembering your leaders. These leaders who lead by speaking the word of God, and from this, remembering these that teach God's word. Imitate their lives. Imitate their faith. So remember, imitate lives and imitate faith. So these three active stretching points take us back to what Timothy had to say about leadership in chapter 3. He goes through the entire gamut of what an elder leader should look like, not a drunkard, sober-minded, submissive, uh, his children are submissive, he knows how to manage his household well, all of these different things it brings into play that we are called to imitate. So instead of just giving one or two points for this manual here, he's actually filling in half the book. Even though they will inevitably do it imperfectly, if your leaders are desiring to honor the Lord with their lives, imitate them. Imitate those leaders that came before us and your leaders that are running hard now. They're runners out in front of you. Follow their lead. Follow their form. If you want an example of right running, remember them. Actively move and follow them and what they're doing. To me, this is, a, this is a sobering thought. Being one of your pastors here at the church, this was an immense reminder to me that not only are people watching my life, they're actually called to imitate me. That's, that's a little scary. <laughs> Makes me even more so want to live my life running right. As my lack of running could teach so many to run wrong. And I know a huge factor in Malachi learning to run properly came from imitation. It's hard work, dedication, but he was able to imitate me. He wouldn't have fully been able to grasp the concept being thrown at him in my mind um, if he wasn't looking at me and watching what I was doing. This is an active remembering. It's a trickle down, though from leader to leader, leader to follower. All Christians should be doing this. With this heart of following leaders, we're to remember that the leaders and the believers at the end of the day are following the only perfect one, right? So in the midst of following our leaders, we need to keep, the remind, keep it in the back of our heads that Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever, is the one that we truly are following. Leading us to verse 9, it says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So right in the heels of running right by following leaders, there's a warning that falls into the same vein. So this is the last point that we're going to be discussing today in this manual. In order to run right, you have to be looking at the proper map. If you're looking at the wrong map, even if running, 
keeping on running, running hard, you won't be running right. All over Scripture, there's warnings to be aware of false teaching. In this context, the Jewish people were falling into traps of belief that Judaism and the laws within were the replacement for the truth. Or it was Jesus plus the law. That's why the author adds in here, we must be strengthened by grace, not food. Because throughout the Old Testament, there's many, many, many mentions of food in the old law. And there's lots of requirements within that. Here, this is saying it's not about food. It's not about the old law. Jesus fulfilled the old law. Therefore, to run right, you have to be looking at the correct map. The only map that matters being Jesus and what he said. Following the one truth that saves, that sets you free. It's not by these other things that you're saved. It's not by rules or regulation that there's freedom. It's only by Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. That's the beauty of the race that we're running. Like Chad said last week, if we have, uh, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we know the victory has already been secured. But we have to run with endurance. We have to keep running, running hard in the midst of it. Run right, run right. The technique, the form, it doesn't matter when it comes to determining if the race is won. But it's how the race is finished and the impact had along the way. Thinking through everything that we've talked about the last few weeks, I think it's vital we remember each of these things as we go through our days. With the understanding that we will not do it perfectly ever, but we strive to run right the best that we can. So at the end of the race, Malachi and Amara ran. They, they received a medal, meant to bring it, totally forgot. So it wasn't for the fastest time or the best run of the century, but it was an acknowledgement that not only did they do it, they kept running, they ran hard, they ran right. And were there stumbles? Yeah. Was there hard breathing? Yeah. A desire to stop? Sure. But they kept going, able to finish strong while running right, knowing the prize was at the end of the finish line. I pray we desire to do this every day as we go through our lives. Pray that you would remember to pull out the manual that we're handed here in Hebrews, these beautiful words given to us by God in this section of Scripture, to know how to run best. Pray that you would never stop training, that you would never stop desiring to run your best every day, all for the sake of the glory of God, the edification of others, and the heart and the desire that others would come to know the beautiful truth of our Savior leading me back to the questions we had at the very beginning. Are you running? Are you keeping on running? Are you running hard? And are you running right? Right. God, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your powerful words. God, that uh, so often we fail to see your truth. We start walking the opposite way from you and what you desire of us. So God, I pray that you would help us daily seek you and truly desire to run the race right. Love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.